we often, as you, many of you will know, know this green book called The Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers. And we often use this to pray from. It's a beautiful collection of prayers, um, but it's quite fitting this evening as we'll be looking at an actual Puritan. Um, and as I've studied this Puritan, these are all quite anonymous prayers, but I think I found the one, if he wrote any of these, that this is the one he would have written um, from a couple different references. So um, I'm not actually going to read word for word for this. Um, I have tried to transpose this um, into BRBC language. Um, so we're going to uh, pray together this prayer that's entitled Love, but sort of uh, transposed into um, our modern words. So we're going to pray and ask the Lord to open our eyes and our ears as we learn. So would you pray with me as we begin? Lord Jesus, grow our hearts in the ability to apprehend your love and embrace you. Even though this week and even today we are quick to grab hold of lust and see our greedy hands dirtied by sin, we remember that you love us before we love you. We were distant, cast off, drifting, and willingly far away from you. We were enemies. And yet you considered us yours, your own possession. You love us as sons and daughters, and your heart even breaks over the moments this week that have brought us stress, worry, fear, and we've found ourselves tangled up in sin yet again. You weep over us as over Jerusalem. Your love has brought you from heaven to earth, and from earth to the cross, and from the cross to the deadly grave. Your heart's desire for us causes you to be tired, causes you to be exhausted, hungry, tempted, beaten, whipped, spat upon, mocked, humiliated, crucified, and pierced as you bowed your head in death. The glory of salvation is the place where your perfect love meets us. You welcome us with a merciful exclamation of peace and forgiveness. You welcome us not like Joseph welcomed his brothers, loving yet sorrowing, but you welcome us loving and rejoicing. We're astounded that your love extinguishes fear, guilt, and sin. Your love does not change or relent. It is the one constant in our lives. Therefore, we humbly ask your spirit to spark into flame all the kindling you place around our lives. Teach us to attend to this world through a lens of faith, knowing that your goodness and your love are to be seen in the most unexpected as well as the most ordinary places in this world. Let us see your love everywhere. In the fellowship we share share here this evening, in the small gathering, when we feel the warmth of the sun when it finally comes out, remind us of the true son of righteousness who comes with healing power. When we feel the tender rain, teach our minds to quickly think of the gospel, which showers refreshment on our soul. When we walk by rivers, Cause us to long for the stream that makes the eternal city glad and washes our robes white, that that we may eat from the tree of life again. Your love is a mystery of mysteries, so please retune our hearts and minds to reverberate with your love that surrounds us. We trust that the rest for our souls lie in the everlasting enjoyment of it. Heavenly Father, we pray to you this evening as we stop and pause and consider a man who has lived before us, who is attuned to your love for him, 
we ask, would you please give us um, clarity of thinking? We ask that you would give us a desire to learn and to be challenged. But also, Lord, we ask, would you please minister to us as we uh, consider this life and his writings? Please give me clarity as I speak. Um, And yeah, teach us, train us, and build us up in the love that is found in your son, Jesus. We're asking all these things in his precious, precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing our semi-infrequent series that we've called Legends, as I've already said, where we kind of look at a significant Christian voice in life that has gone before us. And as you know, normally we would sort of pick a specific text from the Bible and sort of preach from that one voice and that one truth. But tonight it's going to be slightly different, um, but hopefully very similar as well. I guess you could probably call it a sort of testimony, biography, lecture, and message, all kind of wrapped up into one. So we'll see how it goes. Um, The thought behind the series comes from Paul's declaration in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, in our hyper-individualistic culture, we hear that and we think, Oh, that's a bit presumptuous and pretentious, isn't it? Like, who do you think you are? But if we think about it, Paul's right, isn't he? We don't learn Christ in a vacuum. We're part of his body, made up of many members who have learned from other members. We know we learn Christ from other people's mouths and their writings and their lives, whether it's your parents or your friends or pastors or St. Paul himself. We're all much, much more connected than we all realize. And notice Paul doesn't say, imitate me. Full stop. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We're to look to mature believers in the past as an example and imitate them to the degree to which they look like Jesus. And this isn't true of people living now. We have 2,000 years of church history to imitate and learn from. Many of us bear the marks, whether conscious or not, of theologians or pastors or missionaries have gone long, long before us. The lives of God's people still minister to us and are alive in a really fresh way, even after they've been dead for hundreds of years. And so this series, Legends, is about trying to help us make those connections in our very individualistic culture, which I think has wrongly encouraged us to underemphasize how communal our our faith is. So tonight has sort of three aims. The first is to introduce you and teach you to someone you may not have met. Second is potentially to use it as sort of a launch pad for you to read more about or consider um, more of their life. But thirdly, most importantly, is just to hear what they have to say for us, even though it's 400 years later. There's much, much to learn. So with all that out of the way, I want to introduce you tonight to Thomas Goodwin. Has anyone ever heard of Thomas Goodwin in the room first? Anyone by show of hands? Two. All right. We're doing all right. Doing all right. Thomas Goodwin. He should be a household name, but sadly, he isn't. There are some reasons for that, but I first came across Thomas Goodwin one year and ten days ago, to be exact. I know the exact moment because I was taking my final class this past, well, I guess a little bit over a year at Union School of Theology, which was previously known as West, in the middle of nowhere in South Wales in a small town called Bridgend. Um, Emily and I had been living in Liverpool for almost two years, and I had just recently come here to BRBC just a month before and preached in the 
in an evening service in the crush room as I was thinking maybe they might want me to move to Suffolk. On top of that, I had just gone through a full uh, week of nonstop lectures. I had two large papers due, 25 pages of writing due in a couple days. Um, I was down to preach in Liverpool the Sunday I got back. And I just sat through all those lectures. And I felt so drained in every sense of the word, spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally. I was running very, very low. I had one more week of lectures ahead of me. And so it was the weekend in between the two weeks of lectures. Now, most students were away on, on winter break, but as a master's student, there were some of us around, but during the weekend, most of the master's students and the teachers would go home. Well, for me, Liverpool was so far away, I stayed on campus. So basically, I was all alone, all Saturday and Sunday, on campus in the middle of nowhere in Bridge End, this giant old converted schoolhouse, and it looks like this. Many of you, some of you may have actually been there before. Now, the day before, my professor had mentioned Thomas Goodwin and his most famous work called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners. Now, the premise of the book, he said, was that Jesus' very heart and his affections are just as inclined towards us in heaven as they were on earth. That is, even though Jesus has ascended into heaven, and he's been glorified, he's been exalted, he's the exact same towards us as he was in the gospel accounts. He has the exact same compassion, the exact same sympathy and desire for us. And so that Saturday, I found the book on the Kindle store for, I think, 99p. I bought it, and I started walking around this outer garden. I just walked around and around. And it was at that moment that, at that, moment that I realized this is one of those books that I'm not going to be able to put down. And so I just kept walking around the garden and around the garden all by myself. I don't know if you ever had an experience like that with a book. But when I ended the book, it was the moment when the weight of school and life and worry seemed to get so much lighter because Christ's love was so much heavier to me. Now, it's hard to put into words what simple truths Goodwin says and how he does it, but I want to share with you what he has to say and what affected me so profoundly. At first glance, like I said, it's a very, very simple truth, but I think it's powerful enough to leave marks on us for a very long time. The book has had a profound effect on me personally, made me change my master's dissertation topic. It has, yeah, profoundly affected my relationship with the Lord. So let me introduce you now, finally, to Thomas Goodwin, who he was, and then we'll briefly look at this work. Now, again, we should probably start with the fact that Thomas Goodwin was a Puritan, as that will probably illuminate the rest of his life and his writing. It kind of gives you a context for what he was about, what he was trying to do in his life. Now, the word Puritan has a lot of different connotations to it. I'm sure you've heard the word before, but you may have wondered, what actually is a Puritan, or who were the Puritans? And that's a really good question. Many scholars even debate what exactly fits the label of a Puritan. What makes a Puritan a Puritan? I think for many of us, the word Puritan conjures up a cold, unaffected, white guy who's really pietistic and very sort of holier-than-thou, a stickler. Do you know that stereotype, maybe? He was all about fire and brimstone, maybe. Or in modern terminology, the word puritanical literally means against pleasure, to be rigid and oppressive rule followers. But this character is not correct. It's not the whole truth at all. Yes, the Puritans were pietistic, meaning 
They, they wanted their lives and their daily rhythms to, to fit into a rhythm in which they could see God's grace that could potentially come off as legalistic in certain contexts, but that's far, far from the whole truth. Puritans were not against pleasure. They actually wanted all of life, life to be seen through God's glory and his beauty. In fact, if you see in this picture, there's Thomas Goodwin. He's very well known for his hats. Um, and he, in the same way maybe you might enjoy watches or nice dress or something like that, he loved wearing his nightcaps around during the day. And so this is his beautiful, eloquent uh, nightcap. He was not against pleasure. In fact, he delighted in lots of uh, the beauties of the world, including nice hats. For others of us, though, the label Puritan probably refers to a flavor of theology, doesn't it? Which you might refer to as Reformed theology. That's theological thinking which stems from a sort of conservative convictions of Protestant Reformation. When we think of Puritan, we might think of someone with a very predictable theological position, but that's not necessarily the case either. The theology of Puritans were far it, the, the theology of the Puritans was far from monolithic. There's this wide diversity, actually, of theological convictions between different Puritans. Some, like John Owen, found themselves as convinced Calvinism, while others, like Richard Baxter, a very famous Puritan, was convinced of Arminianism. Puritanism doesn't necessarily define one's theology all that specifically. However, what truly defines a Puritan is the religious political movement limited to the 16th and 17th century, which sought to further reform and purify the established Church of England from Roman Catholic influences and papistry. Now remember, about 100 years earlier, in the early 16th century, the Protestant Reformation was in full force with Luther and his 95 Thesis. But now 100 years later, the Puritans were in England and they were convinced that the reformation of the church under Elizabeth I was incomplete and needed to be further simplified, and they need to regulate forms of worship. Therefore, much of the Puritan writing comes across as legalistic because they were writing against high church policies, which were overly ritualistic and empty and hollow. Puritans advocated for a simplified, accessible, living expression of Christianity, both in the church and in the home. And they therefore need to give a definition of what that looks like. So Puritans were committed to re-educating common people with God's word. They were convinced that God's word was actually alive, that it instructs us how to live in the world. The Puritans longed to see the power of the gospel actually transform lives, change lives. They were concerned with empty rituals or fluff. They believed that real change is a necessary outcome of seeing God's grace in the gospel. And finally, Puritans were devoted to experiencing communion with God. Not just talking about God or just talking about Christianity, but actually communing and experiencing God for themselves through his word. So next time you hear Puritan and you, and you think to yourself, oh, that's just a cold legalist from a couple hundred years ago. Remember, though, that it specifically refers to those who lived in England in the 16th and 17th century who were trying to further purify the established church from high church policies. Some who have maybe a slightly more broad definition of Puritan might label people like Jonathan Edwards or Charles Spurgeon as Puritans, 
even though technically they're not. While no doubt Jonathan Edwards was so heavily influenced by Puritan thinking, he was ministering in New England in what would become the United States of America. He was not trying to reform the Church of England. Charles Spurgeon, who was also very influenced by Puritanism, he lived in the 19th century much, much later. Now to jump to the end of the Puritan story, they did not manage to fully purify or simplify the established church by the end of the 17th century. In fact, they were heavily persecuted, and Puritanism eventually stopped towards the end of the 17th century. However, however, as the Puritan cause slowly ended, they did create the space and platform for what we call congregationalist churches, much like BRBC today. Churches who are independent, self-governed, who are free and flexible to tailor their own forms of worship. In fact, Thomas Goodwin has often been called the father of congregationalism. And finally, Puritanism paved the way for what we would call in this country the evangelical revival of the 18th century with Wesley and Whitfield and many others. Evangelicals like ourselves are vastly indebted to the Puritan frame of mind, their piety and their grace-filled Christ-centeredness. They have quite a legacy that paved the way for evangelicalism. Now, that might sound like a mini-lecture, but hopefully that helps as we talk about Thomas Goodwin and give you some terms and reference points for what he does in his life, because that is his passion, to see the church fully alive with the simplicity and accessibility and the power of the gospel in real lives. So on to Goodwin himself. As I mentioned, he's a very forgotten great one. He should be a household name. People have often ranked him as a theologian to stand alongside Augustine and Athanasius, if you've heard of them. He's also been said to be one of the greatest pulpit exegetes of Paul that has ever lived. But he's largely forgotten because of the religious persecution. And it's only later in history do we look back on the Puritans and think, oh, they really had something there. So, Thomas himself. He was born in 1600 in Rollsby, Norfolk. Has anyone ever been to Rollsby? Rollsby, I think that's how you pronounce it. No, it's a very middle of the... You probably shouldn't have ever been to Rollsby. There's nothing there, really. Um, He was born there, and his father was a warden of St. Nicholas Church, which is technically the largest parish church in Britain, I think. Um, I'm not the best historian uh, all the time. I think this picture is actually the church um, to this day uh, that his father was warden of. And his father was very sympathetic to congregationalists and Puritans. And so as Thomas grew up, he was soaked in the Puritan frame of mind. In 1613, that's only 12, he headed off to Cambridge to learn. And it was there that he was acquainted with William Perkins. He read what was called the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a collection of statements and teaching from Protestant Reformation. And there, most importantly, he listened to a preacher named Richard Sibbs. Has anyone ever heard that name before? Richard Sibbs? A couple more nods. Richard Sibbs, you should know because we're basically in his backyard. Do you know of a village called Tostock by chance? Have you ever been there? Richard Sibbs is from Tostock. Um, and he was one of the first early Puritans. And he was known for his simple, directed preaching. And it was there at Cambridge that Goodwin came under his preaching and was radically affected by Richard Sibbs' preaching. 
However, when he became a little bit older, he decided to sort of reject the Puritan and Congregationalist thinking. He thought, no, actually, where it's really at, it's in the high church, Anglicanism, because that's where polished high church eloquence was. And Goodwin had a very large mind. He had a great intellect. And he became very quickly a celebrity preacher. He said his great master lust, as he looks back on it, was the love of applause. So he leaned more towards the established church where there was eloquence of speech and a bit more um, traditionalism. Eventually, he graduated from St. Catherine's College. However, he could not shake the preaching he had heard when he was younger of Richard Sibbs. It was always in the back of his mind, Richard Sibbs' pointed preaching. So in 1620, at the age of 20, he, went, he underwent sort of a conversion-like experience, I guess we could call, when he listened to a funeral sermon. Um, apparently the story goes that he was with some friends and they had a couple options what to do with the afternoon. Um, they could either go to the pub and be merry or they could go to a funeral and hear a sermon. I guess those were your options back then. Um, and somehow his friends convinced him to go to the funeral and listen to a sermon because that's what you would do. You listen to these great orators um, and so he went to a funeral. I don't believe he knew the person, the funeral for, but the speaker spoke on Ezekiel 16. And it was then that he felt the weight of his sin and he understood that he had been confused over the past about six or seven years. And he went through what he calls seven years of gloom, seven years of confusion, wondering what actually is the right way. And he was struggling with his own inner battles he, he eventually went home to Norfolk, um, and seven years later, he found an old retired Norfolk pastor who gave him this advice. He said, don't trust your feelings inside, but look out and rest on Christ. It was at that moment that everything clicked fully for Thomas Goodwin. Upon sort of this conversion-like experience, Goodwin aligned himself unequivocally for the remainder of his life with a theological tradition of the Puritans like Richard Sibbs. He resolved never to seek personal fame, but to part with all for Christ and make the glory of God the measure of all to come. Consequently, he abandoned the polished style of preaching common among Anglican theologians since it promoted the preacher and adopted the Puritan plain style of preaching, which in its self-conscious disuse of human embellishment sought to give all to God. His preaching became earnest, didactic, experimental, and pastoral all at once. He went from battering consciences and domineering in his intellectualism to this simple pastoral preaching. He went on in his ecclesiastical career, his, oops, his church career. He went and he lectured at Holy Trinity in Cambridge and he thought the way to purify the church was to create these independent congregationalist churches that would be the catalyst for change. In 1634, though, he has to leave Cambridge because he refuses to accept Archbishop Laud's articles of conformity, high church policies being pushed onto the church. He refuses. So he leaves. And then as he leaves, he finds a wife named Elizabeth Prescott, and they flee to the Netherlands to a city called Arnhem, where he could minister in the first real Congregationalist church he'd ever been in. But England would call him back. 
1641, he returned to England to pastor a church in London. And then slightly after, by order of parliament, he was appointed as a member of what we call the Westminster Assembly. Now, many of you may have heard of the Westminster Assembly or the Westminster Confession. The assembly was appointed by parliament to restructure the Church of England from all different backgrounds, from Presbyterian backgrounds, separatists, congregationalists, all coming together. How can we restructure the church? This is what Goodwin wanted. The minutes from the meeting show that Goodwin had an extremely profound impact. In fact, he gave, he gave exactly 357 formal addresses to the assembly, the most of any theologian in the Westminster Assembly. Many people, it was a quite heated time uh, in the assembly, lots of debating, I guess you could call it. Um, however, he was known as one of the most charitable men with them, those who he disagreed. No one speaks any ill of Goodwin across all different lines. However, his vision of the Congregationalist Church was lost and Presbyterianism succeeded, and he eventually oversaw the printing of the assembly papers. Afterwards, he was appointed presidency over Magdalen College in Oxford by, by Parliament in 1650, where he got to preach every other week swapping with John Owen. It was a period of great influence, but then again, in 1660, a little later, the English monarchy was restored, and he had to resign from Oxford to pastor quietly in London. The rest of his life was marked by lack of religious liberty, and much of his legacy would live on as nonconformists fled to New England. He pastored until the very end, often quietly and in secret. Even, he even made it through the Great Plague. He lived to be 79, which is a very, very long life for the 17th century. He eventually died from a fever in his own bed. Some of the last words he ever said were these words. He said, I am now going to the three persons with whom I have had communion. My bow abides in strength. Is Christ divided? No. I have the whole of his righteousness. I am found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ cannot love me better than he does, and I think I cannot love Christ better than I do. I am swallowed up in God. Now I shall evermore be with the Lord. In many ways, a climax to an end of his life. In many ways, an anti-sort of climax. Very regular life in many ways. Very extraordinary life in other ways. Now, while Goodwin is well known for his contribution at Westminster Assembly, he's most well known and most well loved for his writing which displays both theological rigor, the thinking behind it, while also a deep pastoral loving concern for those he's writing with. It almost feels like he's walking alongside you shoulder to shoulder as he writes. Now, the cream of the crop was by far the piece that I came across, which gained immediate popularity when it was published, entitled The Heart of Christ in Heaven. Now, he wrote this, because he felt that most Christians, like himself once, have been too much carried away with the rudiments of Christ in their own hearts and not after Christ himself. 
Indeed, he wrote, the minds of many are so wholly taken up with their own hearts that Christ is scarce in their thoughts. Goodwin wanted us first to look wholly outside of ourselves unto Christ. And he believed that the reason we don't, quite simply, is this, because of the barrenness of our knowledge of him. Thus, Goodwin would set forth Christ so that he might draw our gaze to Jesus. So if Goodwin was here and he's... And we want to know what is our, what's the problem? What is the need behind all of this? Well, you say the problem behind maybe our spiritual flatness or our low-grade anxiety or ever-present guilt and worry. Goodwin believes that it's that we don't properly understand how Jesus yearns for us right now, even as he's seated on his throne in heaven Now, naturally, we tend to think now that Christ has ascended, he's too aloof. He's too exalted now. Christ was once a friend of tax collectors and sinners in the New Testament, but now that he's in glory, he's simply too exalted, too exalted for us to know him deeply. We feel we can have sometimes nothing to do with him. Now, maybe you've never actually thought that explicitly or worded it like that, but I'm sure many of us would agree with this statement. Listen and tell me if you would agree with this. Yes, Jesus showed me he loved me by coming down to this world, suffering for me, serving me, and dying for me. And now that I know he loves me, I will live my life in a godly way to serve and honor him. Now, while there's nothing wrong with that, there's an underlying assumption that we subtly make that Jesus' love for us was displayed back then, back then in the New Testament. And now that he's glorified in heaven, it's our job to treasure him like he treasured us. The problem is that we never contemplate Jesus' heart and his affections for us as he's ascended right now in heaven Because if we do not, we will always naturally tend to imprison ourselves with guilt and distance ourselves from him. Goodwin's aim in this piece is very simple. To show us the heart of our great husband and woo us afresh. More specifically, to show through scripture in all his heavenly majesty that Jesus is not aloof from believers and unconcerned, but he has the strongest affections for you and for me. So if you felt spiritually flat and you're kicking yourself for it, or you found yourself in sin this week and your heart is struggling to treasure Jesus, don't try and do what you normally do and psych yourself up and try and conjure up your own love towards Jesus. Just sit back and hear how much Jesus yearns for each and every one of us tonight as we sit here. Go to solution. Take the hands Take our hands and lay them on Christ's breast to feel how his heart beats for us, how he yearns for us. Goodwin knows that in all Christ's glory, he is not sour towards us, distant or unconcerned. If anything, Jesus' glorified, capacious heart beats even more strongly with even more tender compassion towards each of us. And so he shows Christ's heart by giving us three scriptural demonstrations of Christ's affection for us. He gives demonstrations before Jesus' death, demonstrations of Christ's heart after Jesus' 
Jesus arises from the dead, and then after Jesus ascends into heaven. So, first, he demonstrates Jesus' heart towards sinners before he dies. To that, he goes to John 13. So I was wondering, would you please join me in John 13, and we'll try and walk our way through this with, with Thomas Goodwin. John 13. We're going to read verses 1 to 5 of John 13. It says this, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Many of us know this well-known passage of Jesus getting a bucket and tying a towel around his waist and bowing down to wash the disciples' dirty feet. But notice verse 1. Jesus does all this when he was in the midst of all those great thoughts of his approaching glory, of the sovereign estate which he was to be in, he takes water and a bowl and a towel and he washed the disciples' feet. Goodwin says this. He says, When Christ should be in heaven, he could not make such an outward visible demonstration of his heart by doing such a mean or a human service for them. That is... Jesus knows that he's going back to the Father's right hand of glory, and as he leaves, he uses one of the most potent, visceral images possible to show his posture towards the disciples. This is not a one-time deal. This is his heart towards you and I. And then we notice that Judas is there, the betrayer who Jesus knows is going to sell him out that evening. And Peter pipes up, the one who Jesus knows will deny him. And Jesus, knowing that he'll soon be with his Father exalted in glory, knowing these men are about to betray him, he gets down and he says, you need to remember this moment because I won't be able to show you in the same way that this is how I am to you. Jesus doesn't say, if you're loyal, if you don't betray me, then I'll wash your feet. No, he washes their feet. Then he prays for them and dies for them. He's showing his disciples and us, this is how I am to you. This is how I will be even when I return to my Father. I live to soap and to wash you. He loves them, as John says, to the end. That is, he loves us wholly, completely, until perfection. Second, Goodwin moves one chapter further into John chapter 14. Would you read verses 1 to 4 of John 14 with me? Jesus says this, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, 
that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. So Jesus, he says to his confused friends who are about to betray and deny him, my going isn't incidental. That is, it has a purpose, and its purpose is to prepare a place for you to dwell in my Father's house. Jesus' exaltation to glory is also so that we might have a place with him. Goodwin says it like this. As if he had said, the truth is, I cannot live without you. I shall never be quiet till I have you where I am, so that we may never part again. That is the reason of it. Heaven shall not hold me, nor my Father's company. If I have not you with me, my heart is so set upon you. And if I have any glory, you shall have part of it too. So when you feel the weight of your Monday morning and you wonder, Jesus, where are you? What are you doing? Remember that he's intently thinking about each of you as he prepares a place for you. Goodwin continues even further and he says this, He will not stay a moment longer than till he has dispatched all our business there for us. And then the doubling of the phrase, coming he will come, implies vehemency of desire to come. And that his mind is always upon it. He is still a coming. He can hardly be kept away. He tarries only till he has throughout all ages, by his intercession, prepared every room for each saint, that he may entertain them all at once and have them all about him. Jesus, knowing his death was approaching, knowing he will go to the Father in glory to prepare a place for them, he then leaves his disciples with peace. In verse 27, he says, My peace I leave with you. Jesus' heart towards us before he dies is one of serving, loving, and affectionate peace. But then Goodwin turns to chapter 20 of John's gospel to look at the second demonstration. Would you turn to chapter 20 of John with me? Demonstrations after his resurrection. Demonstrations of Christ's heart towards us after his resurrection. We pick up the story when Jesus appears to Mary and Jesus' disciples, having just been betrayed, abandoned, and crucified. Having come back, this is what Jesus says. We're going to read verses 16 to 18 of chapter 20. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and around to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, that he had said these things to her. Goodwin, does, what he does here is very, very fascinating. When Jesus comes back, Goodwin compares Jesus revealing himself to his disciples to when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers in Genesis. Do you know that story? Joseph's brothers had sold Joseph into slavery, into a cruel life, and probably an impending death. But as we know, Joseph, through death, comes life, and Joseph was exalted and glorified as a second-in-command in Egypt. And eventually, he welcomes his brothers back in from the famine to save them. Now, Goodwin thinks that what happens in John's gospel is a sort of an echo back to that story. As Jesus tells Mary, go to my brothers and tell them peace be with you. This is what he says, comparing the speech of Joseph to his brothers and Jesus to his brothers. 
This is what he says. A more friendly speech by far, and arguing infinite more love than that of Joseph's did. For Joseph, after he had told them he was brother, adds, whom you sold into, into Egypt. He reminds them of their unkindness, but not so Christ, not a word of that. He minds, minds them not of what they had done against him. Poor sinners who are full of the thoughts of their own sins know not how they shall be able at the latter day to look at Christ in the face when they shall first meet with him. But they may relieve their spirits against their care and fear by Christ's carriage now towards his disciples who had so sinned against him. Be not afraid. Your sins he will remember no more. Even further you may observe that he minds them not so much of what he'd been doing for them. He says not, tell them that I've been dying for them or that they think little what I've suffered for them. Not a word of that either. But still his heart and his care is upon doing more. He looks not backward to what is past, but forgets his sufferings as a woman her travail for joy that a child is born. Having now dispatched that great work on earth for them, he hastens to heaven as fast as he can do no to do another. And though he had, knew he had business yet to do upon earth that would hold him 40 days longer, yet to show that his heart was longing and eagerly desirous to be at work for them in heaven. He speaks in the present tense and tells them, I ascend. He expresses his joy to be, not only that he goes to his father, but he also goes to their father to be an advocate with him for them, of which I've spoken before. And is indeed Jesus our brother alive? And does he call us brothers? And does he talk thus lovingly of us? Whose heart would not this overcome? Jesus is like Joseph welcoming his brothers home, but he's even more compassionate and forgiving as he holds nothing against them. In in verse 20, the first thing he says to his disciples is, peace be with you which echoes what we just read before he was crucified in chapter 14. Peace I leave with you. Even after the pain of the cross, all Jesus has for us is mercy, forgiveness, and peace. And all he asks us to do is to believe in him. He shows his hands, his sides. Only believe me. As Goodwin says, no sin of theirs troubled him, troubled him but their unbelief which shows how his heart stands in that he desires nothing more than they have men to have men believe in him. And this now when glorified, he doesn't chide them for anything but their unbelief. All he asks is that we trust what he has done for us. As I originally read Goodwin last year, I kept thinking to myself, ah, is Christ really that good to us? And finally, he gives the demonstration of Christ's heart towards you and me, which is after he ascends to heaven. We're going to turn one last time to Hebrews chapter 4, a little way further to a well-known passage in Hebrews 4. We're going to read from Hebrews 4, 14 to 5, 2. It says this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, 
the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifice for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, Goodwin makes the case that there are two main things that stir Christ's affection for us right now as he is the ascended high priest in heaven. The first is our afflictions, which shouldn't surprise us. That is our pain, our suffering, and our sorrow, whether that be something that feels huge, waiting on medical results, anxiety, depression, death, or something seemingly small, daily worries and fear. In those moments, Jesus, he empathizes with our affliction because there is a man on the throne of heaven, a real flesh and blood human who understands you. Your afflictions are not foreign to Jesus. He does not merely know about your sufferings or that you do suffer. He understands the afflictions themselves. There's a man on the throne of heaven. But secondly and finally, what stirs Christ's affection for us in heaven, what Goodwin says the most, almost unbelievably, is our sin. In verse 2 of chapter 5, we read that the high priest is appointed to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset by weakness. In other words, to deal gently and mercifully with those who find themselves drifting and in sin. Goodwin declares, sin moves Christ to pity more than to anger. Sin moves Christ to pity more than to anger. As he says this in our final quote, O miserable man that I am, who shall deliver me? So long fear not. Christ, he takes part with you and is so far from being provoked against you as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yes, his pity is increased the more towards you even as the heart of a father is to a child that have some loathsome disease or as one to a member of his body that has leprosy. He hates not the member, for it is his flesh, but the disease that provokes him to pity the part affected the more. What shall not make for us when our sins that are both against Christ and us shall be turned as motives to him to pity us the more? The object of pity is one in misery whom we love, and the greater the misery is, the more is the pity when the party is beloved. Now, of all miseries, sin is the greatest. Whilst you yourself look at it, at it as such, Christ will look upon it as such only in you. And he, loving your persons and hating only the sin, his hatred shall all fall, and that only upon the sin." To free you of it by its ruin and destruction. But his bowels shall be the more drawn to you. And this as much when you lie under sin as under any other affliction. Therefore, fear not. What shall separate us from Christ's love? Goodwin here is not saying that, that God is not angry with sin. But rather of those who are in Christ, he pities more than being provoked to anger. His point is this. 
Those of us who are in Christ have a new identity. We're no longer defined by sin, but we are defined by Jesus. That is why we always end our services with, go in peace, saints, not sinners. The sin that remains, in, that remains is no longer who you are. It is rather a sickness. And an illustration that Goodwin uses to help potentially. Fathers love their children, don't they? They don't hate their children when they get sick. The sickness in their children arouses their compassion for their children even more. When you, run, when you begin to run from God in guilt over sin, God runs towards you in grace. Your joylessness stirs his compassion for you. His heart is set upon you. His whole life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension is that so that we can belong to him and be with him. So as we end, if Goodwin were here, I don't know what he would say. But I'm sure that he would hold forth the truth that he knows well. That Jesus' very affections are directed towards you right now. Even though this week we all come from sin, he wants us to remember that God himself got down with a bucket and a towel around his waist to serve us. And he returns from death, the death in order to pay our ransom. And he holds nothing against us. All is forgiven. And he says, peace to you, brothers and sisters. And at this very moment, he's preparing a room to entertain all of us together one day. So, when you find yourself this week in weariness, in dullness, in anxiety, in sorrow, in sin, wherever you find yourself, please do not forget that Jesus himself looks down on you with compassion, pity, and power to sustain you, to cleanse you, to get you safely home. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, he loved us before we loved him. He always treasures us first. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are astounded by your love for us that we so quickly um, turn a blind eye to. Please teach us that you are reigning in heaven, that you are preparing rooms for your saints, and that you look down with us on compassion. Please send your spirit to lead us into godliness as we behold Jesus, who loves us more than we love him. Please enlarge our hearts and our affections to be set on the one who loved us before we loved him. Now, as we sing our final songs, please uh, speak to us and remind us of the high priest who is in the heavens, who loves us so dearly. We're praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.